Well, thanks, Deborah, and uh, welcome to Uni Church this evening. It's great to be with you. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, how did everyone's week go? Did everyone have a fun Anzac Day? Kind of ish, maybe. No, that's fine. Uh, as Ming mentioned, we are in a uh, we are in a, a mini series on prayer. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've just been finding this really helpful uh, these last couple of weeks as we've been going through prayer. Uh, helpful in the way that we've been reminded about uh, the Heavenly Father in whom we pray to, uh, the privilege that that is, uh, the fact that we get to pray and should be praying in line with His kingdom purposes. I've been reminded also uh, that prayer is an expression of our restored relationship with God. And finally, I loved last week how we were reminded that we got to pray anywhere, anytime, and that we shouldn't be taking that for granted. I wonder what it is that stood out for you as we've been going through this mini-series in prayer. And today, tonight we're going to be uh, camping out in Ephesians 3. Uh, now, this may be a little bit of a difficult passage for us to work through, but it's been a real joy for me to, to go through this this week. And I hope that tonight, uh, as we unpack this, that it'll be something that's of benefit to you in your prayer life. What do you think of when you think of power? If I was to ask you, what is the best demonstration of power in the world today, what would you say? Perhaps you would think of powerful people, our good friend Donald Trump, or a bit closer to home, Jacinda Ardern. Perhaps you would think of powerful cars. I don't know if you're into electric cars at the moment, but Telsa, uh, the Model X, it does zero to 100 in under three seconds, over 500 horsepower of power. Wonder about superheroes. Do you ever think of power in superheroes? Thor or the Hulk, perhaps. These are all different types of physical power. But if I was to ask you about spiritual power, what would you, what would you say? How would you describe that? I think, for me, I'd, I'd struggle to articulate what spiritual power would look like. And my hope and prayer for us today is that we would come to a deeper understanding of the power in us and how that shapes our prayers. This may not be in a way that you might presume, but in a way that Paul lays out for us, that we would pray for power. So please join me as we ask our Heavenly Father to help us as we go through this, uh, His Word tonight. Father in Heaven, we do give you great thanks for the fact that we're able to gather here this evening. And we thank you that through Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, you have reconciled yourself to us. And that by your Spirit, you keep us growing in our love and knowledge of you. And we ask that you would help us to keep doing that this evening. As we come to your word, you would speak to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, for those of you that are not familiar with the book of Ephesians, uh, this is Paul's letter to a church that he was involved in planting uh, during one of his missionary journeys. And so we're at this point now in Paul's life where he's been put in prison in Rome. And so he's writing this letter back to his Christian brothers and sisters back in Ephesus. And as we had read for us by Deborah just before, we, we see that Paul is an apostle sent by God. He's a messenger with a particular gospel focus. And that is to ensure that the people understand God's salvation plan is for more than just the Jews, that it's for all nations. And so uh, the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been recounting the story of the gospel, forgiveness of trespasses, trespasses, 
through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. How God has lavished upon us every spiritual blessing, how God's plan started with a covenant family under Abraham, how it grew into a nation called Israel. And now the great mystery that has been revealed is that the gospel story encompasses all people, all nations, bringing Jew and Gentile together into one new humanity, a new community through the redemptive work of his son Jesus on the cross. In Christ, all things are being united to him. And this is through God's grace and his grace alone. And so it's with that in mind, those, those first two encompassing chapters, that we come to chapter 3. And Paul here shifts from the corporate nature to the individual, to the individual believers. Each person is now invited into a new multi-ethnic family unified in peace, a family with a wonderful father, a father of all families. And that's how Paul begins his prayer in verse 14. Read with me. Uh, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now at this point, if you've been following along in our uh, mini-series on prayer, you'll be thinking to yourself, good job, Paul. You've uh, correctly addressed God as Heavenly Father here. Uh, Tick in the box. And we also learned last week, as Ming mentioned, that we get this great privilege of accessing our Heavenly Father at any time, anywhere. You may be in the shower or at work or playing sport, whatever it might be, you get to pray to God. So when I read this verse, I was a little bit confused. What does it mean to kneel before the Father? Maybe this is what prayer should look like. Maybe I should pray on my knees more. I mean, let's be honest, Paul could have just said, it's for this reason that I pray to the Father. But he doesn't. He uses this idiom for prayer. He, he uses an expression of praying that is one of posture, of, of bending the knee before the Father. I take it he's describing how he prayed to his Ephesian brothers in, in prison. And so this is not prescriptive in that we should all be on bended knee when we pray, although I don't want to discourage you from doing that. Come to your Heavenly Father in whatever way you like. But it doesn't mean that we all need to go from here and buy prayer cushions. In fact, the most common posture for praying was uh, standing amongst the early Jewish Christians. And so I take it that Paul is highlighting a posture of prayer and an attitude of humiliation and submission, of, of worship and utter dependence. Because even though we're able to call upon God with intimate language like Abba, Father, it conveys more than just intimacy, doesn't it? When speaking to God as Father, it also conveys that He rules the world and that we are obedient to him. It makes me think, when was the last time I did pray on my knees? When was the last time you prayed on your knees? What is your attitude when you come to the Lord in prayer? Well, as if Paul wanted to stress just how small we are, he reminds us in verse 15 that God is the father of every single family. He's the chief papa. The the origin of every family begins with Creator God, in heaven and on earth, over rulers and authorities. Every family is given its individual shape and role by God, Jew or Gentile. This isn't just a label, but the essence of who they are. The only reason we know what family is, is because God has created families. He was the father to Adam and Eve, just as he's the father of Jesus, and he's our heavenly father. And so all of a sudden, I feel very small very 
dependent like a helpless child, but with millions of relatives. I don't know, have you ever been to like a, a large family reunion? Uh, just when you show up and you're like, man, are we even related? Like, there's so many of you. Uh, it's usually around a special celebration. Uh, my grandma, actually, she turns 90 this year, so we've got one of these planned for later in June. It's going to be a great time as we come together and celebrate what God's been doing in her life. Uh, but she's got 15 grandchildren, and so there are nine great-grandchildren and growing. Um, you, you include spouses and uh, other distant relatives in that. And I'm going to be struggling to remember everyone's names. There's probably even a second cousin that I haven't met yet that I'll uh, get introduced to. But, but God has named every family in the entire world. Every family that has ever lived, whether they realize it or not, finds its origins in Father God. And we need to know that God is not father like humanity of fathers. As if my fatherliness is reflected onto God as a helpful way of me to understand Him or to think of Him. Rather, it's the other way around. Humanity was created to design to image God, to reflect His fatherliness. See, it's God that's given precedence. He's the one who's head of all creation. If you're someone that likes big theological words, God is the archetypical father. So uh, I've got a little daughter. She's, she's, her name's Allie. She's 15 months old. No, 19 months old. Uh, I'm a father to her in ways that are similar to God, but yet fall short of the standard of fatherhood. And I doubt there are any of you here that are fathers, but if there are, <laughs> there may be times that you, like me, have felt that you've missed the mark as being a father. And I, and I think that Paul wants us to feel this weight as we head into this prayer to be reminded that we are dealing with a father that is so great and so vast that we're actually, they would actually struggle to comprehend his magnitude. And that's because what Paul is about to pray next has much more to do with God than it does to do with us. He's going to bring two petitions before God, two requests for his Ephesian friends. And firstly, Paul is going to pray that the Ephesians would be strengthened with power. This is where our concepts of spiritual power come in. I wonder um, what you think of in terms of powerful displays of spiritual power. Cast your mind maybe back to Jesus casting out demons in the Gospels. We might think of spiritual healings or power to overcome adversity. Now, we shouldn't be scared of spiritual power when understood rightly. When understood the way Paul understood spiritual power, it becomes hugely encouraging. And we need to see the extent to which Paul ascribes power here in his prayer. He tells us two very important things. Firstly, the domain in which this power operates. And secondly, who the power is mediated through. So read with me from verse 16. He says this, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being, through or by his spirit. So, so Paul here is praying that the Ephesians may be strengthened in their faith, that by the Spirit's powerful work in them, they may grow their faith. This uh, language of inner being, I don't know if you saw it there on the way through, that inner being is something else that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. Uh, inner being versus outer being, this kind of idea that outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. You know, like my good looks, my red luscious curls, they're going to like fade one day and I'm going to perish and die. And, and unfortunately, that's the same for all of you. 
But the joy is, as Christians, is that we're actually being renewed day by day inwardly. And that's the focus Paul has here as he embarks on this prayer for his Ephesian friends. And so that's why you might hear us here at Unichurch say things like, your best years as a Christian are ahead of you. They, they, we want you to continue to grow in your love and knowledge of your Heavenly Father. The Christian hope is for the resurrected body. And yet until we receive that gift, it's our inner being that is being strengthened by God's power. So Paul is praying for displays of God's power in our inner being. He is concerned for the domain of our being that controls our character and prepares us for heaven. For what purpose does Paul pray for power? Well, he goes on in verse 17. That is, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, hang on a minute. Uh, When I became a Christian, didn't I invite Jesus into my heart? Hasn't he been kind of like hanging out there ever since those days? Didn't he, by his spirit, take up residence in me when we became Christians? That's what John tells us. What, What is the purpose of Paul's prayer here, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? Is he not already doing that? Well, the answer is yes, but you're a work in progress. Back in Australia, uh, Christy and I bought our first home when we got married. Uh, it was a home that needed some repair. Uh, the old paint on the walls was uh, painted in the days when it was fun to have a different color for every room. Did you guys grow up in a house like that? And, and on top of that, it was this textured paint that they'd put on like in a swish fashion. So we had to kind of like sand the walls and then paint them. Uh, the, the, we had to replace all the blinds. There was a rotten fence that needed replacing. A couple of years later, there was a retaining wall with termites all through it that we had to spend thousands of dollars to get repa- replaced. Uh, our home was something that we, over time, continued to renovate. Even now, there's still things that need to be changed in our home. Uh, someone else is living in it at the moment, so that's fine. They can deal with it. But But while we lived there, we made it our own. We renovated it. And when Christ, by His Spirit, takes up residence in us, it's like He's moving into His first home, which is your life. There's a lot of cleaning to do, a a few repairs. Your life is not yet to His taste. But His aim is clear. He wants to take up residence in our heart as we exercise faith in Him. When people take up residence somewhere, their presence eventually characterizes that dwelling. So if I was to come to your home, I'd expect to see evidences that you live there. I should be able to tell that it's your home when I walk in the door. And when Christ moves into our lives, he finds us in very bad repair. There's a great deal, it takes a great deal of power to change us. And that is why Paul prays for power. He asks that God may so strengthen us by his power in our inner being that Christ may genuinely take up residence within us, transforming us into a house that reflects his own, calendar, his own character. You know, I wonder, uh, how is your life renovation with Jesus going? It's possible that you're here this evening checking out uh, things of Christianity, uh, and Jesus doesn't yet dwell in your life. And that's fine. We're really glad that you're here. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus, love to chat to you afterwards. But I wonder if whether you're treating Jesus as a temporary flatmate. He's just there for a short time. He lives in the back room. He's got his own bathroom, but he's not allowed up your end of the house. Perhaps you treat Jesus more as a fellow tradie, uh, 
you're in the business of renovating other people's lives. And so you go with Jesus each day and you help renovate other people's houses and their lives. And then you go home and you eat together and you sleep under a roof that leaks. Paul is prayerfully expectant that changes will take place in the lives of believers. And I want to point out here as well that there is the Trinity on view in those verses. I don't know if you saw that as we went through, but Paul is praying to the Father by the Spirit that Christ may dwell in us. Our triune God is at work in our inner being as we become suitable residents for the risen Christ. This is the purpose Paul has in mind when he prays for power. And so as Christian men and women, we're not only to believe certain truths, so that is important, but we are to be transformed into a lifelong process that stretches towards heaven. God's purpose is not that we only believe certain truths, but to transform us into a lifelong process that stretches towards heaven. So what happens when you don't feel very spiritual? I take it that the feeling of spirituality, the, the feeling is a, a, is a um, perception. It's a subjective thing. We want to experience power so that we can be in control. But Paul here, he prays for power so that we would be controlled by God himself. And so I want to suggest to you tonight that feeling spiritual is synonymous with feeling that you are growing, that you are maturing that you are continuing to be transformed from the inside out. Well, having prayed to God for God's power to continue to transform us, Paul moves on to his second petition. He moves on to pray that we might have power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ, to, to, to comprehend the love of Christ with all the saints. Now, being a father is a great thing. Uh, there, you get reacquainted with a whole lot of kids' books. So there's this book. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you have heard of it. It's called Guess How Much I Love You. Uh, it's a lovely little story about a rabbit's love for its bunny. Okay, so you've got Big Nut Brown here, and then the bunny's called Little Nut Brown here. And so the story kind of goes through, and Little Nut Brown here is kind of like, hey, mummy, I love you like this much, as high as I can jump. And then like the mummy, Big Nut Brown here, she's like, well, I can jump higher than you, so I love you more. And then, and, then, and then little nut brown here is like, well, I love you like down over those hills as far as I can see. And then like big nut brown here is like, well, I, I love you there and back. And so, uh, and then it gets to the end and little nut brown here is going to sleep. As he's lying down, he's looking up at the moon and he's like, mommy, I love you to the moon. And the catch line goes, well, I love you to the moon and back. It's so nice, isn't it? <laughs> I take it that Big Nut Brown here is not saying that his love is greater. Sorry, he's saying that his love is greater than Little Nut Brown here can imagine. This isn't language of intellectual comprehension, as if it could somehow be measured. As if he was saying, yes, Little Nut Brown here, I love you 384,000 kilometers times two. <laughs> or, or like, you know, I love you a million dollars worth of love, as if it's measurable. No, no, this is a metaphor. It's figurative language. And that's what Paul does next. He uses a metaphor and a paradox to illustrate the limitless dimensions of God's love for us. So pick it up with me, verse 17. He says this, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, 
may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. The, the, the remarkable fact about this petition is that Paul clearly assumes that his readers, even though they're Christians, do not adequately yet know the love of Christ. They don't yet appreciate the love of Christ. I wonder, how appreciative are you of Christ's love? See, Paul knows that such appreciation is not something that is willfully done. It requires power. And he wants them to have the power to grasp just how great the love of Christ is. This is not a power that we might love Christ more. Rather, it's a prayer that we might grasp his love for us. And his paradox is more stunning yet. To to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That is, to know what is beyond mere knowledge. Wow, that's incredible. Now, we'll, we'll never get to the point of knowing God's truth as He knows it. But this is an invitation to swim in the deep end of the pool, right? Let's, let's jump into this love that our Heavenly Father has lavished upon us. This cannot be merely an intellectual exercise, as if kind of standing by the poolside with your togs on constitutes swimming. Paul is not asking his readers to be able to explain penal substitution or redemption or justification or sanctification or all the other shun words that Colin Buchanan uses. He's asking God that they might have the right power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love in their experience. So, sure, this includes our intellectual reflection, but it cannot be reduced to that alone. Why? Because Christianity is not only intellectually satisfying. We serve a relational God, one who desires to know us and for us to know Him. And just to be clear, Paul is not appealing for uncontrolled mysticism, as if Christ's love is something to be privately experienced. Paul is not fostering experiences of love outside of the gospel. But he is saying that apart from the power of God, Christians will have too little appreciation for the love of Christ. We need the power of God to appreciate the limitless dimensions of that love. And so Paul prays for power. Now I take it that a genuine and deep perception of the love of Christ will really come to a person who is not spending much time in the Bible. That is how we know who this God is. That is how we meet God in the pages of the Bible now. In your prayers, I wonder whether uh, it's necessary to expand your language, to use some more emotive words to capture this experience that you have of knowing God. Not so that you can heap up empty phrases, but so that you can more clearly and accurately express the depths of Christ's love to you. Are we too concerned about praying, sorry, are we too concerned praying about our Heavenly Father rather than to Him? As if, as if as long as I get my prayer doctrinally right, that'll make Him happy, rather than just approaching Him as our Father. Are we too concerned about praying about our Father rather than to Him? And friends, my fear is that in the kind of conservative world that we roam in here at Uni Church, 
We need to be careful that we don't become only intellectual. You may have come to uni church thinking that growing means growing in your head knowledge, and it does, but it also means growing in your heart knowledge, growing in your love of who God is. I want to say as well that Paul is not advocating some lone ranger Christianity, as if he's interested in only the maturing of the individual Christian. He says here that it happens with all the saints, with all the Christians. John Stott, he writes this, he says, it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine any individual Christian genuinely growing in this regard, yet being unconcerned about fellow believers. It makes no sense that a deepening grasp of the love of Jesus Christ could remain entirely privatized. The whole church must grow this way, and that includes us here at Uni Church. That, that is why, as a membership pastor, I want to be encouraging you guys to come to church, to belong, and to keep growing, because it happens in community. It happens individually and corporately. And so having unpacked what it means to, strengthen with, to be strengthened with power, and having seen how it's necessary to comprehend Christ's love, Paul now turns to the goal or the result of being filled with the fullness of God. And here Paul wants us to have a proper grasp of the love of God in Christ Jesus to the end that we might mature. And so he desires that we might be filled up in verse 19, saying that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now this is a bit of a phrase that is a little bit uh, on the surface maybe strange to us. But it really is simply just saying, uh, it's Paul's way of saying, to be all that God wants you to be, to be spiritually mature, both in intellectually and experientially. Paul is seeking that for the Ephesians. And for Paul, we cannot be as spiritually mature as we ought to be unless we receive power from God to enable us to grasp this limitless dimension of the love of Christ. Back in Ephesians 1, if you've got your Bible open, you may want to flick there, but uh, Paul uses a whole lot of language to remind us of what God's done for us. He tells us that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, verse 3, that we've been chosen, verse 4, that he's predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ himself. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He has made known to us the mystery of his will bringing everything together in Christ. This is truly amazing. What God has done for us in Christ Jesus is intense. The creator and sustainer of the universe chose you. He adopted you of all people. It's simply amazing. You may think that you're a mature Christian, that your theology is on point, that you've got a good education, you've been living the Christian life for years and years. But the question tonight is, are you amazed at what Christ has done for you? See, Paul knows that we cannot be mature until we know this love that surpasses knowledge. To comprehend the incomprehensible. He wants us to grow in our understanding of Christ's love so that we will become mature, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's what we mean when we say here at EV that we're growing captivated, grounded, growing, is to be growing in our love and knowledge of what Christ has done for us. 
maturing in a way that God wants us to mature, both in our head knowledge and our heart knowledge, our love, becoming more Christ-like. I really enjoy watching sport. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but um, bringing sport onto the screen has been a really convenient thing for me. Uh, It happened before I was born. In New Zealand, 1972 was the first live rugby match. Uh, They used two cameras. I don't know if you know this. Uh, Two cameras, so you kept cutting between these two views. You stop and think about the way you watch sport now and how it's evolved. Uh, You know, they introduced the sideline camera. Uh, They they introduced the ref cam at one point. I don't know if you remember that, but man, that was a waste of time. (laughs) They would only ever cut to like 30 seconds of the ref cam, right? And then the poor guy had to wear it for 90 minutes. They they put microphones on the ref so you could understand the on-field decision. You could hear it more clearly. They, they installed spider cams in stadiums now, so you get these flyover shots, and it's all about creating the experience. It's all about bringing you, the viewer, into the game, as if you were right there, not just sitting in the stands watching, but like you're right there playing the game. There's even uh, ways now that they can do 360-degree live footage. So you can literally be on a boat sailing around the world with all the crew. It's crazy. That's kind of the direction that Paul's pushing here. He's saying to Christians, don't just intellectually watch the fullness of God, but actually experience it. Be filled up with it. Live to know your heavenly Father more and more each day as you walk in relationship with Him. When was the last time you prayed for that? When was the last time that you prayed that God would fill you up? In our connect groups, we should be praying like this as well, that God would, be, would keep growing us as we grasp the magnitude of what Christ has done for us so that we would be filled with the fullness of God to, to be mature in the true sense of the word. What do you guys pray at your connect groups? You know, when you get to that, that point where you're like, all right, guys, we'll click prayer points now. Yeah, we'll pray for your cat. We'll pray for your grandma. But are you praying prayers like this? Are you praying for your growth in godliness? Is that what's driving your prayers for one another? Not just your current circumstances, but your growth in maturity. Well, just when you thought it was all about you becoming mature, Paul helpfully reminds us that it's Christ who matures us. It's him who gets the glory. And so we get to verse 20. 21. You know, I wasn't really sure whether I should be including that in the breakout for tonight. But man, Paul here, he puts his petitions into perspective by praising the one who gives such blessings. It's also the second most quoted verse in Ephesians, apparently. So that that was important. So let's read it. Verse 20, 21. He says this, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, given all that we've just discussed, given the context in which Paul has been praying, the the immeasurable dimensions of Christ's love for us, the fact that he's working inside of us, why is it that when we get to this verse, Christians often get derailed and end up thinking of Ways of God's power being displayed outside of ourselves. As if healing someone is a demonstration of displayed power. Or, or your ability to succeed in your, your job. Hashtag success for Jesus or something. 
like, like, have you considered for a moment who's writing this letter? Never in Saul's wildest dreams would he have thought that he would go from being a Christian killer to a humble messenger. From a life of persecuting the church to a life of proclaiming Christ. You only have to cast your eye back up to verse 7 that we read earlier. Paul is still surprised by the gracious gift of power bestowed on him. That is an example of God doing above and beyond what Paul could have ever asked or thought. That is a renovation. That, that is a miracle. God created the universe. Don't think that he needs you to perform some miracle to bring him glory. You are the miracle. That you were once spiritually dead, but now you're alive with Christ. And so this single-sentence doxology of praise combines an immediate personal goal. To be changed by the Spirit within us, it combines that goal with with an ultimate goal that God would be glorified. Glorified in the church and glorified in Jesus Christ. We've seen that God is in the business of renovating people's hearts one room at a time. He will do it in ways that you wouldn't have even imagined. God is able not because he is powerful, but because he is gracious. He loves to give good gifts to his children. So this becomes a powerful incentive for us to pray. Not for your improvement, but for God's glory. And it's all because of his work in us by his spirit. And so each one of us, we are changed into Christ's likeness. As each one of us becomes more and more rooted and, and grounded or established in the love of Christ. Collectively, we make up this local expression of the church, which brings him glory. We become a bunch of people that are so captivated by Jesus that he gets all the glory. And this happens from generation to generation. It's been happening for years It will continue to happen for years, not because of our ability to hand down the gospel, but because of the gospel itself, because of God's power at work within us. And Paul, you know, he's going to go on in the next chapter, and he's going to explain how this is the calling to which we've all been called, to be praying for God's power to be at work in us, transforming us, so that we would walk in a manner worthy of that calling to live out our lives knowing that our best days as a Christian are ahead of us. And we started by asking, what does spiritual power look like? And I hope that you've seen that for Paul, spiritual power is the outworking of a maturing relationship with God, one that is centered around Christ dwelling in us by his spirit. See, Paul's point is not that we should do powerful things. No, his point is that the powerful thing has happened inside of us and will continue to happen inside of us. This is God's will. This is what Paul prays. As we think about what to pray for others and for ourselves, Paul prays that we might know more and more the love of Christ, that we would continue to grow in godliness. So friends, don't ever think that you are beyond renovation, that your life is so messy that you can't grasp the fullness of the love of God. Don't ever think, though, that you have reached your maximum level of Christ-likeness, that there's nothing more knowing to be done, that you can't know more of Jesus' love. And don't think that you've ever reached your Christ-likeness potential either. 
that there is far, far more to understand, to, to grasp, to experience of the love of Christ. God can do far more abundantly in you than through you. And my friends, this is what brings God glory. So that we pray, so, so pray that through the remarkable renovations God does in and through us, that he would be glorified. When you see all that God has done for us, when you understand how amazing it is that we wretched sinners have been so loved by a holy God, as you understand that more and more, it is crazy, it is crazy to think that anything could ever be done for the glory of anyone other than God. It's crazy. And so as we close now, we're going to pray. And I want to invite you to pray in whatever posture you want. If you want to stand, if you want to kneel, do whatever you like. But let us pray now to the God for power, for whom he gives us great comfort and joy through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are simply in awe of all that you have done for us. That you, the father of all families, would adopt us into your family. We give you thanks for the work you have done in each of our lives, for the way you draw us to yourself by your spirit, the way you enable Jesus to dwell in our hearts. And we ask that you would continue to strengthen us with power through your spirit at work in us. Keep us rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, we pray. And Lord, would you forgive us for the times that we've intellectualized our faith more than our experience of knowing you? Help us, we pray, to grow in holiness as we grasp the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. To, to grasp what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Fill us with your fullness, Father. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.